Hello and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. It's week six or so of the lockdown, so again, by the power of Zoom, I'm having a virtual chat with this week's guest, Heather Dixer. Hi, Heather. Hello. Heather teaches sport management and sport history at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at the Montfort University in Leicester. Her research interests are the Olympic Games, international sport, diplomacy and international relations in Germany, Europe and NATO. And she's written a number of articles and chapters on the diplomacy and history of the Olympics, among other things. As we'll discover, Heather is a valued member of many organisations working in our field. And in recognition of this in 2019, she received the Ishpesh Award for her work. And uh, congratulations on that, Heather. Thank you. Uh, So Heather, we'll come to your research shortly, but I wanted to kick off by bringing our listeners' attention to a virtual event that we're both involved with that will be hosted very soon at the British Library. In fact, we had a meeting about it yesterday. Um, Can you tell us some more about what that event will be? Sure. So on Friday, June 19th at 3 p.m. British time, um, we'll be having an event um, hosted by the British Library and uh, we'll be bringing together some individuals from the archives and library sector, along with some academics, um, to talk about kind of how, um, from the archive standpoint, kind of the the types of materials that they've been collecting, um, kind of giving us some uh, historians and academics tips about what they're they're doing. And then from the academic side, talking about, um, you know, our research and how we use archives and and different um, materials in our own research to hopefully help archives um, build up their sport collections even more. So we're really excited to bring together kind of two different um, groups within this field that we obviously work together quite well. And and, um, this will be a small virtual event um, in preparation for an in-person event next year. Hopefully we'll all be together in person um, (laughs) soon enough. Um, And so we're really looking forward to this. And there's especially going to be a bit of an Olympic and Paralympic focus as well um, with this event. And then again, with the event in 2021, before the now 2021 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. Major things like the Olympics being postponed, but of course, um, work that we're doing as well is all being pushed off to next year. But I'm really glad that we can uh, use the internet to at least have some kind of smaller event uh, for people out there while they're sort of locked up in their houses and maybe a bit bored. Uh, they can come along and listen. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we don't anticipate it being too long. We know people are getting a bit zoomed out, um, but we do hope to have participants um, from, you know, around the world. We hope people will be able to participate across time zones um, and join us and, and ask questions and, and be part of our event. Yeah, and your involvement with Olympic history goes right back to your PhD thesis, doesn't it? Um, it does. I mean, officially it goes back even earlier to my undergraduate um, senior honors thesis at the University of Michigan and my master's thesis at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. But um, yes, it does definitely do go back to my PhD research. I guess the, the real research that started to actually be published. <laughs> Yeah, and I read uh, a chapter that you wrote based on your part of your thesis, I think, which kind of looks at the sport reconstruction in Germany following World War II. How did the Olympics fit into that reconstruction process? So yeah, my PhD um, looked at how the three Western allies use sport in their um, democratization process within Germany and its 
you know, rebuilding process and, and bringing Germany back into the international community and, and particularly through sport. And so, um, you know, the three Western allies in particular really helped uh, West Germany, <coughs> excuse me, um, get back into the international federations as well as the International Olympic Committee um, and help make sure that Germany would be able to compete in um, the 1952 Olympics. The Western allies, um, you know, helped Germany get back into the International Federations and the International Olympic Committee. And while uh, Finland was really happy to have its um, wartime ally come and participate in the Summer Games in 1952, um, there was a, a fairly strong anti-German sentiment in Norway um, because of the wartime occupation of the country. Um, and so there's a bit of hesitation on the part of having um, Germany participate in the Winter Games in 1952, but in Oslo. Um, but ultimately, the, the Germans did participate um, in it. And so that was kind of the culmination of Germany returning to the international community through sport with seeing their um, presence and, you know, them marching into the, the stadium at the opening ceremonies in Oslo in 52. Yeah, and that process of reacceptance re of the Germans into the Olympic movement went hand in hand with denazification, didn't it? Can you tell us how that denazification process happened? Well, it was it was a bit complicated of a process. Um, you know, it, it happened in each of the four occupation zones. Um, but then ultimately in 49, you know, it, it, it was a, a weakened process towards the end of the occupation. And then um, in 49, when all of the German national sport governing bodies were allowed to come into existence again, they weren't allowed to have national organizations during the occupation. Um, and there was a real rush to form them as soon as the Federal Republic came into existence in the fall of 49. And, and a lot of the people who had been involved in sport before 45, um, you know, sometimes going back as far as, as Weimar and, and stuff, um, but, you know, some people who obviously had those connections even throughout the 30s with the International Federations, the IOC, they did resume their, their roles, um, you know, leading German sport, West German sport, and, and resuming some of their positions within the international governing bodies, including the IOC, you know, Germany's two IOC members. Um, they never were kicked out or they never lost their position. So while denazification happened at the ground level in Germany and this idea of not having authoritarian um, clubs and, and any kind of organization and sport was very much this idea of seeing, you know, now you can have clubs and they can be democratically run and this is a great place and way to teach Germans how to be democratic. In the end, with the international sports, the people who had the connections. And so we did see a return of individuals who had been involved in sport all throughout the 1930s. Um, so the IOC is one of the key operators in sports diplomacy, but you've also looked at the underbelly of the organisation recently in your article for the International Journal of the History of Sport, or the IJHS, and the role of corruption in the bidding process for hosting games in the 1960s. And I was shocked, I was shocked, I tell you, at some of the uh, practices that people <laughs> uh, um, took part in, in in trying to lure the Olympics to their towns and cities in 68. Can you tell us some more about that article? Sure, um, that was actually a really, I guess kind of fun article to come up with. So um, I've been working on this larger project on the bidding for the 68 games and in international sport in the 60s. And I started realizing as I was doing this research that 
very much on NATO and the Cold War and, and bidding for the games that I realized there were these other ways that the, the bidding process for 68, the Summer and Winter Games, was being reported in the newspapers and that things that we would very much consider corruption, it's illegal by the IOC standards today, and was maybe-ish not so much supposed to be happening back then, but was being reported on in the newspapers um, as this is just what's happening and, and what people are doing. And so um, it was kind of this, uh, I, I presented it um, for a first thing at NASH when we were in, I think it's when we were in Colorado. Um, and it, it just kind of was like this side version where I'm using all of these same documents in the book that I've been writing and using them in one way, but then it was this way of using the same material for this other article and realizing that, um, you know, we do need to rethink, like when did corruption in the Olympic bidding process start? Because, and, and is it really corruption when it's being openly written about in the newspapers by the newspapers supporting the bid committees, by the other, you know, countries criticizing the other bid committees and, you know, that one's gonna get a leg up on this, but everything that was happening, it was just, um, it was kind of this other article that then came about with the same documents that I was using in a different way. So it was kind of really fun to have that opportunity. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting comparison that you made between um, corruption or perceived corruption or potentially corrupt practices and uh, the use of performance enhancing drugs and how <laughs> concepts of what is clean or what is dirty changes over time and so yeah as you said something that we think of in the modern day like people just throwing free trips to all of these people who are making the decisions just was reported on as just oh yeah we've got some guys in town from so and so uh this weekend in salt lake city or no sorry lake placid wasn't it that you were talking about i just thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it yeah, and you know, and I think with the Lake Placid one, you know, the newspaper only came out, you know, once, twice a week. Obviously, it is a small village. It's still a small village today, you know, and, and obviously the local population, there was a lot of support. There was also some, you know, I don't want to say anti-Olympic movement, you know, not like we see protests today, but you know, there was some criticism at times, especially, you know, we need to spend more money on this. And yet, they wrote about the local members. Anytime they went abroad, you know, it was they popped by whomever the IOC members were in that country trying to convince them to vote for, for Lake Placid, um, why they went to the French committee members when France had a city, a town, you know, bidding for the same games. Because back then, the host countries still voted. They didn't have to sit out those rounds. Um, as I've seen from the final votes. Yeah, but they're still like, well, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, vote for us or if, if Grenoble doesn't make it, vote for us. Obviously, that didn't really work in, in like Placid's favor. Um, but yeah, so it was really fascinating to see how just open it was, these conversations and, and having to think about these things a little bit differently. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed reading that one. Um, but you've also looked at the role of FIFA and sports diplomacy. So it's not just the uh, Olympic organizations. And again, this was looking at um, the role of sport in the Cold War, wasn't it? And this is for a new book, I think, that's coming out this summer. Yeah, so I have an edited book. Uh, I'm the editor of it, um, and I also have a chapter in it, um, and it's called Soccer Diplomacy. It's coming out with the University Press of Kentucky, 
Um, so I think it should be coming out in August, um, which is very exciting. Um, and yeah, and so um, not only my chapter, but a, a lot of other chapters in it um, look at FIFA, sometimes the other different um, regional confederations, regional or you know, continental federations, um, and sometimes it's country to country relations, but you know, I mean, it is the world's most popular sport and there's a lot of um, different ways that it's been used within diplomatic purposes all across the globe. Yeah, it really is the global game, isn't it? Um, but your own chapter looks at um, East Germany and the way in which we've, we've talked about the way in which West Germany was brought back into the international fold. The East Germans really saw soccer as a Trojan horse, didn't they, for getting into um, Olymp um, international organisations? Well, it was all a sport, you know, with West Germany accepted as Germany, you know, it presented a real problem for, for the communist East German state. And they used all of the sport federations as well as the IOC to try to gain recognition, you know, and, and especially with sport with flags and national anthems and an emblem on somebody's jersey, then, you know, that it really was, they thought they could get de facto recognition from other countries around the world. and. Um, Sports where the Federation, the International Federation, had recognized East Germany caused problems. And, and FIFA and, and soccer and then UEFA, with, um, you know, with, as the European Federation, um, really caused problems. And, and it was a bit more complicated when then the same country was applying for or trying to, you know, the teams were trying to qualify for the Olympics when the Olympics still had the two German states come together and compete as a unified all German Olympic team. Um, which kept becoming even more acrimonious in the 1960s. Um, and so now we have, you know, at the same time that East Germany is playing in some continental tournaments, then they're not able to try to qualify for the, or as the Olympics, so then as Germany, but then it's okay that the same countries play them, who wouldn't play them as East Germany, but they're like, oh, well, now you're the all-German team, even though it's all entirely East German athletes. Um, and so it was really complex to, to navigate that. And for... Um, but I think the average fan um, kind of, you know, wanting to see certain games or have an international game played um, for it to be canceled for political reasons in some contexts, but then not canceled in others was something that was hard for the average kind of soccer fan within the continent um, to, to understand and to see. And, and so it did cause a lot of problems. Yeah, and the East Germans really used that as a propaganda uh, tool as well, didn't they? So NATO banned East German athletes from traveling, I think, to uh, NATO member countries. And so the East Germans would talk about this as being an oppressive practice, wouldn't they? Absolutely. So and th this is where the problem was, is NATO was supporting its West German member, um, so all of its, its allies, uh, and especially after the Berlin Wall went up in 1961, they didn't allow teams representing East Germany as a country to then travel to them. And so this wasn't just soccer that was impacted. It was actually quite a number of, of sports. And this is where then an all-German Olympic team could try to qualify for the games, even though it was all the East Germans, because um, they never, for team sports, they never took the best athletes from both sides of Germany to make a team. It, they would play against each other. And whoever would win between the, the two sides, that side then represented the all-German Olympic team for um, the Olympics or the Olympic qualification. And so uh, it, it was really complex in that as the all-German Olympic team, they could go to NATO states, but as an East German national team, they couldn't. 
But then, for instance, a club team from East Germany could go because they're not representing East Germany. They're, rep you know, it's that city or that, that club. Um, they did have to, you know, not play the anthem or were told don't, you know, wear GDR, DDR on their, their uniforms at some point. So yeah. it was tough. <laughs> yeah. So that, that book will be coming out this summer then. Is that right? So, yeah. So the soccer diplomacy book will be out in August. Um, assuming that all goes well with things being printed and shipped. Um, and you're also the reviews editor for uh, Nash's journal, that's the North American Sports History Society, isn't it? Um, their journal, Journal of Sport History. Uh, what challenges are you facing in that role during the era of the uh, pandemic? So I have to say that um, the scholars who had already agreed to um, review books for us have been wonderful um you know we reached out to them um end of march beginning of april and just you know asked if if everyone still was able to review books their book that they had um, agreed to um they, they were still able to wanted to um and just asked them to let us know what a reasonable deadline was um and everyone got back to to us really quickly um and everyone was still willing to do so um, usually suggested a, a deadline sometime in, in May or June, um, and some of those reviews have already started to, to come in already. So um, that's been really great. Um, we're okay for um, having book reviews in the next uh, issue or two, which is, is really nice. Um, we have held off asking um, people to review books, as, especially as everyone's um, kind of finishing up their semesters and, and grading right now. Um, but we do have a nice little list of books that we will be seeking reviewers for um, over the summer. Um, but we are obviously being um, cognizant of additional challenges and responsibilities that individuals have in, in the current situation. Yeah, and as well as um, that kind of side of your uh, working life, you, you also, um, you're involved with another project that our listeners might be interested in, which is H Sports. Uh, can you tell me some more about that and what that involves? Sure, so H Sport is part of the larger um, HNet or Humanities uh, Network Online. And um, as being part of HNet, um, H Sport is the network that is specifically for sport studies, sport humanities. Um, there's quite a lot of history content, but it's also, um, you know, philosophy, sociology, anything really under that broader sport studies, sport humanities um, umbrella. And it's a way to connect scholars from all across the globe. Um, there's actually about 1,400 um, scholars, um, mostly academics, but not all, um, who are subscribed to the list, um, or the network. It originally started, you know, in, in the olden days of, of email listservs, but um, HNET has really expanded its online platform and, and moved away from the traditional listserv focus to, to be a website and, and have a lot of dynamic and, um, more resources available to to individuals. Um, you can still sign when if you're signing up for it. Um, you can still receive all the notifications um, either as they come or as a daily digest, and it's not too overwhelming. Um, but we do have additional projects. There's a thesis and dissertations list, um, as well as the successfully defended um, thesis and dissertations. So for anyone who is out there working on a sport history, sport humanities masters or PhD, um, we'd love for you to go and share your information. And if you are on that list, please don't forget to let us know when you have successfully finished it, um, because we do love to celebrate um, those individuals and um, those projects coming to their end. Um, 
There's a quarterly journal launch um, that covers multiple languages um, where you kind of get to see the table of contents of all the um, recent publications that have come out, recent journal articles. Um, so it includes both sports specific journals as well as you know the, the sport article that is in non-sport history or journals. Especially as somebody who works with um, uh, in French history, the the French history summary on there is just very, very good. So I forget who, who collates that information, but whoever it is that I should give them a credit really in my... <laughs> We're always sad to hear that. And we do have quite a few languages. Um, we've got English language broken up into both the sports specific journals and the non-sport journals because there's so much that is published. We've got German, French, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, um, and then twice a year we do have Italian now. Um, so we're always um, great, you know, grateful to, to have suggestions for it, and then also, you know, to see that that work. Um, we also have a, a teaching initiative of syllabi um, where people have shared their syllabi from different types of classes, modules that they've taught, um, so people can get some ideas, um, help them out, obviously. You know, we're coming up to the time when people are either preparing new ones um, or just thinking about revamping it. Um, and that's a project that we, we do hope to expand as well and also include different assignments um, because, you know, it's great. We don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. And there's some really great examples that are out there. Um, and to, to have them to use for inspiration um, is really, really awesome. So um, if you Google H-Sport, you can find us. Um, and if you are not um, currently a member, you just have to create an HNet account and then ask to subscribe to, to join the network of H-Sport and we'll approve your membership. Yeah, it's really straightforward. And um, you're telling me that you were working on something else that's coming out this summer as well. Uh... My, my monograph itself, yeah. um, not this summer yet, well, still. <laughs> I'm finishing it up, um, but yeah, so my chapter that's in the edited book on soccer diplomacy um, is part of my larger project about, um, and as well that, that corruption article too, comes out of my larger project on NATO, the Cold War, and um, international sport, especially the bidding for the 68 games. Um, and so that monograph, I've been working on it a long time, um, moving states and countries a couple times uh, kind of slows down the uh, research and writing process a bit. Um, but I'm uh, hopefully just finishing up some of the revisions and hopefully we will see that book um, in late 2021, perhaps. That's fantastic. And uh, yeah, good luck with uh, finishing that off and uh, getting it done. Uh, Thank you. And uh, thanks for spending some time with me today, Heather. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. No, thank you. I've, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, for not only for, for H-Sport, but if anyone is interested in reviewing any books for the Journal of Sport History, you can just um, go to journalofsporthistory.org and um, under the, the menu tab, there is um, Wences Book Reviews. And on it, there's a really, really short form you know where like your name and email are two of the five questions um so if anyone's interested we'd love for you to um, share your information and, and the areas that you're interested in um to be considered for uh, reviewing a book in the future for us great i'll uh, try and remember to put a link to uh to that on uh, the home page for this uh, podcast episode and if you want to find out more information about the olympic event at the british library that we talked about earlier 
or any of the organisations that Heather and I have discussed, uh, I will try and put links uh, for them as well on the homepage. And we should also soon be announcing the plan for the BSSH's own virtual conference, which will take place in August. So keep an eye out for that. And for more information, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org. Or you can visit the BSSH's account, which is very easy to find if you just search for British Society Sports History. But for this episode, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye.